Please turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2, this morning I'll be reading verses 4 through 8. This is God's Word. As you come to Him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. I've been reading a lot recently about how church leaders in general across the scope of the church are concerned about losing this young adult generation. So many young adults are walking away from the church. A USA Today study uh, once or recently said that one out of four church-going Protestant teens leave the church and don't return by the time they're 30. One out of four, so 25% of our church-going teenagers are leaving the church. A, the group, George Barna's group, tried to do, try, actually tried to bring together a bunch of surveys recently to try to determine why is this true? Why are we losing this generation to some degree? And they got responses back from young adults. And here are the top five reasons, according to those surveys, why young adults that have left the church did so. And I'm going to paraphrase here. These are my own words, but I try to give you the essence of what their answers were. The first reason was because churches try to shelter young people too much from the world. The second reason is that the churches are boring or irrelevant. Third reason, interestingly, is the church is anti-science, is the reason it's being given. Fourth reason, the church is judgmental, particularly in relation to people's sexual practices. And the fifth reason is that the church is intolerant of other faiths and religions. Those are the five top reasons why young adults say they're leaving the church. Now let me respond first by saying that there's a nugget of truth, an element of truth in each one of those criticisms. The church has been too legalistic. The church has been too judgmental. The church has been too irrelevant in many ways. There's always a kernel of truth in those kind of things. But I can't help when I listen to those top five reasons, I can't help but hear the major voices of our culture. That this is the siren of the spirit of the age. This is what the culture is teaching us about the church, and our young people are buying into it. We could respond to these criticisms by, first of all, making the church more like the world instead of sheltering our young people, our teenagers from the world. We could make the church more entertaining 
We could make, we could, in the, the, the uh, beliefs and interpretations of Scripture, we could just drop all of our disagreements with the modern scientific community and concede to what they say is true. We could accept everyone's views and practices in regard to sexuality. And we could stop preaching the gospel. That way we could satisfy all the concerns of this generation. That would be one way of doing it, and I hate to say it, but many churches have gone that route to one degree or another. We do need to repent if we've been sinfully judgmental. We need to repent if we've been legalistic. We need to repent if we've been out of touch with the world that we've been called to reach. But we must not compromise in order to grow the church. God is growing the true church. And our concern needs to be Where is he doing that? How is he doing it? How is God growing his church? And we need to get in line with his program. Here in chapter 2 of 1 Peter, Peter gives some of the most exalted descriptions of church in all the New Testament. Matter of fact, the next couple weeks, we're going to be looking at Peter's doctrine of the church. There's some beautiful imagery here, much of it drawing back upon the Old Testament. Verse 5 Peter says, as you come to him, he's speaking of Jesus Christ, as you come to him, and let me first point out that word come to him in the Greek is a word that usually is associated with worship. So he's speaking in the context of God's people coming to Christ to worship. He says, as you come to him, a living stone, you yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house. So when you think of worship and you think of stones being put together to build this great spiritual house, probably in our context we think of like one of those great old Gothic cathedrals. Worship. Great stone house. That's what we think of. But understand that Peter was writing to Christians, poor persecuted Christians mostly, in little house churches in northern Asia Minor. They weren't thinking of Gothic cathedrals in that day and age. When he talks about Stones being put together into a place of worship, what these people in the first century would think of would be the temple in Jerusalem. That's the imagery. That's what Peter's alluding to. Again, he's going back to the Old Testament to talk about who we are. And he's saying the same thing that Jesus said. He's saying the same thing that Paul said, which is that the Old Testament temple was a symbol. It represented something far greater that was to come. The church of Jesus Christ. That the temple represented where God meets with his people, where reconciliation between a holy God and sinful man takes place, where by God's grace, God's people are enabled to worship him with all their heart and with all their soul. The church is God with us. The church is the greater temple. So if you're going to build a great building, you're going to build a temple, Where do you start? Well, Peter alludes to this in verse 6. In verse 6, he's actually, Peter actually quotes three different passages from the Old Testament here in the verses we read this morning. And in verse 6, he's quoting from Isaiah 28. And in that context, in Isaiah 28, Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah, is bringing to the people of God a prophecy of judgment. 
He's condemning the people of God for being self-reliant, for being prideful, for forgetting him, for trusting in their city of Jerusalem, for trusting in their walls, for trusting in their temple, for taking security in their own efforts instead of in the Lord. He's condemning them for that. And this is what God says, and Peter quotes him here in verse 6, For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. The Lord is saying, I am going to tear down Jerusalem. I am going to tear down your temple, that physical structure, that, the, that priesthood, that, those rituals that you're trusting in by your own efforts. I'm going to tear all that down and I'm going to rebuild And when I rebuild, I'm going to lay a new cornerstone and I'm going to build a new temple on that new cornerstone. Kind of reminds you of Jesus' parable. Jesus alluded to the same passage. Jesus told a parable about wicked tenants. These were tenants that were hired to work in the vineyard. And the master went away and set them to work in the vineyard. And then he sent... Representatives, He sent servants to come and receive the profit from the vineyard at the harvest time. And instead of giving him what the owner of the vineyard was due, they beat these servants and sent them away empty-handed. And so finally, after repeated instances of this, they sent the, the, the owner of the vineyard sent his own son. He said, surely they'll listen to my son. Instead, they not only beat him, they killed him. And Jesus tells that parable... And he has the leadership of God's people, the Jewish leadership in mind, those who made up the priesthood, the Sanhedrin. And Jesus says to them, this is in Luke chapter 10. I'll read you just Jesus' conclusion to that passage. I'm going to pick up the reading in verse 15. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. When they heard this, they said, surely not. But he looked directly at them and said, What then is this that is written? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. Jesus is making a profound claim. He was the promised cornerstone. He was establishing this new temple. And the builders who were sent to build God's church, to build God's people, had rejected the true cornerstone. Peter applies this directly to him. I'm going to flip over quickly to Acts chapter 4. There, Peter is standing before the Sanhedrin, and he again alludes to that same prophecy. He says in verse 11 of Acts 4, This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. This is the architect's drawing for the new covenant temple. This is what Peter and the apostles were assent To give to the church is the architect's drawing, the architect's plan for building the new covenant church. Paul describes it himself over in Ephesians chapter 2. Just bear with me as I give this so many allusions to this in in the New Testament. In Ephesians chapter 2 verse 19, Paul says, 
You are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. This is God's plan for his church. The writings of the prophets and apostles is the foundation and the cornerstone that ties that foundation together and establishes the entire framework for the church itself. That cornerstone is Jesus Christ himself. And Paul, just to give you one more passage, over in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 10 and 11. According to the grace of God given to me, Paul says, like a skilled master builder, I lay a foundation and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it, for no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. The church is built on Christ as the cornerstone. Now let me just take a moment to talk about that, because we don't build buildings the same way they used to. When you think of a cornerstone, you have to go back to old-time stone masonry. And the master builder that Paul alludes to there, the master builder, the best stone cutter, was given the job of taking a boulder and cutting it into a cornerstone so that you could build a massive stone building. And he had to be the master builder, had to be the best, because that stone had to be to be cut to exact dimensions, precise dimensions. And it was so important because every other stone used in the building process was related to the dimensions of that stone. You knew how big to make the other stones because of the dimensions of that cornerstone. The height, the width, the depth. All of it was determined by the first stone, the cornerstone. And the angle of the walls, even the angle of the walls was set by the cornerstone. It's determined by the cornerstone. The level for each level in building the building, was set by the cornerstone. It was the reference point for the whole building. When I think of the human body, I think of DNA. You know, DNA is the pattern that every cell in the body, you know, like that cell, is built upon. So the cornerstone is like that DNA for the whole building. It's the master plan for the building. And that's why Peter here, in quoting the Old Testament, says, the cornerstone is precious. Precious. The word precious means high value. Very expensive. It's precious because of the role that it plays in the building process. I'm convinced that this is one reason that Peter, I think he just loved this teaching of Christ being the cornerstone. And he had a special reason for, for, for it because Peter's name was Simon when he first met Jesus. But Jesus called Peter aside one day, or called Simon aside and said, I'm not going to call you Simon anymore. I'm going to call you Rocky. You're the little rock. Peter, the rock, you are a rock. You are a stone that is built after my dimensions. I'm the cornerstone, and I'm going to build my foundation with you, Peter, and the apostles and the prophets, and we're going to build the church. And so Peter always understood when he said, you know, earlier in 1 Peter, when he said, be holy as I am holy, you know, he's quoting the Lord saying that, be holy as I am holy. Peter's thinking, Christ is the cornerstone, I'm the rock, built according to his specifications, to be like him. 
So we are being built on Christ the cornerstone and the foundation of Christ's revelation through the apostles and the prophets. We are building, we are being built by God into this glorious church to his glory for all time, forever, for eternity. And if Christ is the cornerstone, then what is true of the church? It's so tempting to go out and find another plan, especially if our church isn't growing the way we'd like it to grow, especially if the church, the world isn't impressed with our church the way it's impressed with other churches. It's very tempting to come up with another plan. And, and, and my plea to you this morning that as God works here to build this church, that this church always be built upon the cornerstone of Jesus Christ. Because Peter gives us some very precious promises. If Christ is the cornerstone of the church that's being built, here are the promises that Peter gives us. First of all, if Christ is the cornerstone, then the church is immovable and invincible. If Christ is the cornerstone, the church is immovable and invincible. Look at verse 4. As you come to him, a living stone. I just want to highlight the fact that he calls our great and glorious Savior, the Lord of all the universe, Peter calls him a stone. I just want to draw your attention to that for a second. In our context, that might be a little disturbing. If somebody calls me a stone, I'm not necessarily going to be complimented by that. But he calls the Lord Jesus Christ a stone. But again, he's speaking against the context of Old Testament scripture. And it's rich with this imagery of the Lord as a rock, the Lord as a stone. In 1 Corinthians 10, the Apostle Paul talks about the rock that Moses spoke to and eventually struck that gave water to the people in the wilderness. The people during the exodus between their slavery in Egypt and their entrance into the promised land. The rock that provided the water that sustained them. Paul says that rock was Christ, he said. That rock was Christ. And again, we think of Christ who called himself the living water and the cornerstone. The rock that followed them was Christ. Throughout the Old Testament, God is called the rock of Israel. You can't read very far into the Psalter before you come across numerous, numerous instances where the Lord is called the rock. And when that imagery is used, it's imagery of a fortress, a refuge, a place of certainty, a place of security, a place that can't be moved, a place that can't be knocked down. It's a place where the psalmist says, my feet were placed upon after I was delivered from the miry clay. Even if people don't want to admit it, they want that kind of surety. They want that kind of security. They want things in their lives that are unchanging and unmoving. And whether this generation or the next generation or the generation before us ridicules the idea of certainty or absolute truth doesn't matter. Christ is still the cornerstone. Francis Schaeffer used to talk about true truth. And we are in an age where we need to be more bold and more clear before a world that says there is no true truth that Christ is the cornerstone. 
He is the truth. He's not just a proclaimer of truth. He is the truth. And he's the cornerstone of the church. Let me add to you, in thinking of Christ as an Old Testament rock, let me give you just one other glorious imagery from Daniel. Remember when Nebuchadnezzar, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon, had a dream. He had a dream of a huge statue. Part of it was made of gold. Part of it was made of silver. Part of it was made of bronze. Part of it was made of of, uh, of uh, clay and iron. And Daniel was called in to interpret this dream. And Daniel told King Nebuchadnezzar that this statue represented the coming great kingdoms of the world. And what happened in Nebuchadnezzar's dream, as Daniel related to him accurately, was that a stone was cut out of the mountain without human hands. And that stone came rolling down from the mountain, hit the statue, and smashed it to smithereens. And the wind blew it away. Do you remember what happened, according to the dream, after that stone smashed the statue that represented all the kingdoms of the world? That stone began to grow. And it grew. And it grew to the point where it became a mountain that filled the entire earth. This is what Daniel, let me take you back to Daniel 2 for a second, where he gives the interpretation of that dream. And listen to how he concludes it. He says, and in those in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever, just as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand, and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold. A great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. Peter says, Jesus is the stone. Jesus is the one who has been established as the cornerstone. And not only will, will Jesus become the foundation of the church, but he will become the stone that fills the entire earth and his kingdom will rule forever. As Daniel would later put it over in chapter 7 in another vision, saying the same exact message. He says, I saw in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given a dominion and a glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away and his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. All of that is in the background of Peter saying Christ is the stone. You come to worship the stone of the Old Testament scriptures. The Lord is our rock. The Lord is our cornerstone. Well, if, you know, and and remember what Jesus said. I am going to build my church. Peter, you're going to be one of the rocks of the foundation of my church. And I'm going to build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. If that stone is going to grow to fill the whole earth, then that implies something. Things that grow are living. And so Peter says he calls Christ the living stone. So if Christ is the cornerstone of this stone building and the cornerstone is a living stone, Peter says by implication all the other stones are living as well. This is going to be a living, organic, growing building. Remember a few weeks ago we talked about oxymorons. 
a linguistic term. Oxymorons are when you take two words that seem to contradict each other and you put them together in order to make a point. Peter calls Christ a living stone. He calls us living stones. Do you get the oxymoron there? Can you think of anything more dead than stones? But this stone is living. What's he alluding to? Central to all the apostolic preaching is that Jesus Christ is risen. Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. He has conquered death. He has conquered sin. And he lives forever. And not only does he live forever, but he lives with us. I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. We do not worship or serve some great historical figure, some ancient philosopher. We serve and worship the risen King, Jesus Christ. And if Christ is risen, if Christ is here, if he is the presence of the Lord in the midst of the church, then vibrant spiritual life flows throughout the church. You know what it feels like. If you're a believer, you know what that feels like to walk into a fellowship of believers and sense the presence of the living one. To sense the spirit of Christ in the midst of God's people. You know what that's like. It's a spiritual vibrancy, vitality that we long for. And it comes anywhere Christ is present. He is the living one and we share in his resurrection life. A number of years ago, I had the opportunity to visit London. It was a dream of my life and I had a chance to spend a week there. And one of the places, one of the tourist places that I wanted to be sure I saw before I left the city was Westminster Abbey. Now, Westminster Abbey is a gloriously beautiful cathedral. But that wasn't what drew me there. That wasn't why it was on the Camp Miss list of my tour. It's because I wanted to go and see the place where such a great work of God had been done centuries before. Our church uses as a doctrinal statement the Westminster Confession of Faith, the Westminster Shorter Catechism, the Westminster Larger Catechism. These have have been used greatly of the Lord to help keep the church true to biblical doctrine over centuries. And the stories, all the history I had learned about the Westminster Assembly, I just had to go and see where God had worked so powerfully in that day and age. I was so disappointed <laughs> once I got there. I don't know, if you've been to Westminster Abbey, what you realize as soon as you walk in the door is it's a museum, first of all. It's not a church. It's a museum. They still do some church, churchy things there, but it's really a museum. But it's even worse than a museum. It's a graveyard. It's a mausoleum. It's full of dead people. Rudyard Kipling is buried there. Charles Dickens is buried there. Numerous kings and queens and noble people are are buried there. Charles Darwin is buried there. It's a mausoleum. It's a whitewashed sepulcher filled with dead men's bones. No trace of the great and holy men who put together the Westminster Standards. As far as I know, no trace of the gospel. There's no spiritual life there. 
And they may not be graveyards, but that's true of the vast majority of churches all through Europe. And unfortunately, many of the churches in our country, even here in State College. Whitewashed tombs full of dead man bones. Because Christ is not the cornerstone. If Christ is not there, there's no life. Well, how do we, if Christ is the risen one, if he is the life, how do we get that life from him? Well, let me, I'm not going to take time to do it. Let me just remind you what we talked about two weeks ago. The life of Christ is infused into us by his word. That's what Peter taught at the end of chapter one. At the end of chapter one, he talked about the imperishable seed, the seed of the word, the living and abiding word of God. Remember how we said you can't separate Christ from his word. Christ is the word. And where the word of Christ is, the spirit of Christ is. Where the word and the spirit are together, Christ is there. And the life comes into us through his word and through his spirit. To abide in Christ is to abide in his word. So if Christ is the cornerstone, then the church is spiritually alive. Thirdly, if Christ is the cornerstone, then the church is pleasing to God. That's actually a a profound thing to say about your church, this church, any church. My church is pleasing to God. We hesitate to say that, don't we? A little uncomfortable saying my church is pleasing to God. But if you believe the gospel, that's all you can say. It's interesting, in verse 5, Peter changes the metaphor temporarily. He's been talking about us being living stones built on Christ the cornerstone to form this great temple, the New Testament temple of God. But in verse 5, he just, for a moment, he switches the metaphor. No longer is he talking about us being stones in the temple. He's talking about us being priests. And notice he applies it to all of us. Not some spiritually elite class. Not some mediators out there. He applies it to all of us. We are priests. Because the cornerstone is in place. And why are we priests? Because back in chapter 1, verses 18 and 19, Peter said, You were ransomed with the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. You see, in the Old Testament, there were in the temple, there were three kinds of sacrifices that were done on a regular basis. There were guilt offerings, blood atonement to cover for sin, and then there were thank offerings and fellowship offerings. And what Peter basically is alluding to here is that because the guilt offering is done, Because Christ, as he hung on the cross and breathed his last, said, it is finished. The blood has been shed. The price has been paid. Sin has been atoned for once and for all. Therefore, we are all priests. We are all priests. And we, having atonement having been made once for all, all past, present, and future sins paid for, we now can make our lives an offering. That's what Paul says in Romans 12, to offer yourselves as living sacrifices. And over in the book of Hebrews, at the end of the book of Hebrews, it talks about sacrifices of praise, the fruit of lips that confess his name. And it goes on at the end of that chapter to talk about doing good and sharing what you have. Such sacrifices are pleasing to God. See, we are priests, and everything we do, all our service, is pleasing to God, even though it's still deeply tainted by sin and selfishness and pride. Yet it is all acceptable to God because Christ 
has paid for all our sin. Sin has been atoned for. When God looks at all of us, he sees priests who have all the rights of access into his presence because of what Christ has done. The blood has been shed once for all. So the church, if Christ is the cornerstone, then the church is pleasing to God. And then finally, if Christ is the cornerstone, here's the bad news. The church is offensive to the world. The church is inherently, in its essence, offensive to the world. Peter said that Christ is the living stone rejected by men. And then, then he goes on to quote that Psalm 118, the Messianic Psalm, to prove that this is what God prophesied. This didn't surprise him. It was all foreordained. The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And he says the stone, the cornerstone, would be a stone of stumbling. This is from Isaiah 8. He quotes in verse 8. The cornerstone, instead of being the building block for the work of God in the church, for them it would become a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. The word offense there is scandalon, a scandal to the world, foolishness to the world. Peter says the key to whether Christ is the cornerstone of your work or the stumbling block and the rock of offense that will crush your work, the key is faith. He says in verses 6 and 7, whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe. So the work that you do in this world, we're all here, I'm assuming, because you feel like you're a part of the church. But the work that we do in this world is either destined for shame or honor, Peter said. And the distinction between shame and honor in that final day is going to be whether you built upon Christ as your cornerstone or whether you stumbled over Christ as the cornerstone. Simeon prophesied over the infant Jesus and said in Luke chapter 2, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that will be opposed so that the thoughts from many hearts will be revealed. We cannot make the gospel smell beautiful to those who are not born again, who are not regenerate. It will always be a stench in their nostrils. And we need to stop trying to cover over that stench. Because, as Paul says, that aroma is pleasing to those who are led by the Spirit to come to Christ. There's where we need to focus. Whom is the Spirit drawing to Christ? Those are the living stones that are going to be built into a glorious, Christ-honoring structure. In Psalm 127, it says, Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. And I guarantee you that the Lord is only building the church where Christ is the cornerstone. Christ isn't boring. I guarantee you that. He's not irrelevant. He is the Lord of science, and he's the Lord of sexuality. Yes, your sexuality. He is the way. He is the truth. He is the life. And the church where God is working is the church that says, Jesus Christ is preeminent. Jesus Christ is Lord. 
His holiness is the standard for our holiness. His words are the standards for our words. His deeds are the standard for our deeds. And his gospel is our life and it's our hope. Are we building upon the cornerstone that God has laid for the church? I pray that not only is it true today, but that it will always be true here. It is possible to build without Christ. You can do that by departing from his word, doctrinal compromise. That's why we fight to stay true to the scriptures, to stay true to the essence of the gospel. Because to depart from scripture is to depart from Christ and to build on another cornerstone and to build something wholly out of line with the will of God. But sometimes it's not just departing from the word. Sometimes your doctrine can be exactly correct according to the cornerstone, but you still can find yourself building off the cornerstone. You can do that by de-emphasizing the gospel. Always remember that we do not preach Christ the moralist. We don't preach Christ the philosopher. We don't preach Christ the social revolutionary. We preach Christ crucified and risen from the dead. And then finally, we can build without Christ if we don't depend upon Christ, if we depend upon ourselves instead. I read a lot of leadership books. I go to leadership seminars sometimes. Leadership training is good. But I often come back from those things feeling inadequate, feeling like I'm not doing everything that needs to be done in order for the church to grow. And that certainly can be true, and there's certainly a lot of value in learning, even from principles that work out in the business world. Any leadership, if God designed leadership, it works anywhere. There's good in learning about leadership, but we must never come to the conclusion that Christ isn't enough, and that the gospel isn't enough, because he will build his church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. We just need to be sure that we are preaching, proclaiming, and living for Christ. If this is his work, it is invincible, it is immovable, it is filled with spiritual life, it is pleasing to God, and yes, it will be offensive to the world. But that's between them and him. We just need to be faithful to the truth. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for Christ who is the word. Father, keep us true to him. Keep us true to his gospel. And Lord, may you be greatly pleased in the work of building that takes place here, that takes place in this community, that takes place in this country, as Christ builds his church around the world. Bring revival, bring reformation according to truth. And let's reach the ends of the earth for your glory, Lord Jesus. And we pray that you will come again soon. In Christ's name we pray, amen.